0: everything that you need to know uh, about that book, that you uh, have everything uh, at your grasp when you study the Bible that you can really understand it. You know, I learned that a a lot of people want to read the Bible, but a lot of people get discouraged in reading the Bible. And the reason why they do is because the Bible, first of all, looks like an intimidating book. And it's really not an intimidating book. It's a very uh, easy book, but it looks intimidating, especially if you've never been in it before. And then when you start reading it, you have the best intentions, and you really want to uh, learn what it says. But once you start to dig into that book, and there's 31,171 verses in the Bible, my goodness. Once you start getting into that, it just gets like overwhelming, and suddenly in the midst of what you're reading, you find yourself asking yourself, what am I looking for? I mean, we know about God. We know about, you know, the things of God. And suddenly you're, you're caught in the middle, you want to read the Bible, you want to learn about the Bible, you want to learn about God. But you're caught in this void, a vacuum, of what you're supposed to be looking for or what you're missing. And that's what this church is all about. If you haven't noticed it already, we are a little cut different than the average church because we put all of our emphasis on the Word of God. That's the only thing we're here for and that's the only thing we exist for. We have a lot of fun in the process. We don't get hung up on a lot of things that a lot of people do. We just get hung up on the Bible, and that takes care of itself. So what I wanted to do, and you know my standard plan and policy, is I'll spend time with anybody in this church, whether you're a member or not, on a weekly basis, every other week, however it works out, to help you understand the Bible. We have our Thursday night Bible study. It's any question you want to ask about the Bible. Because I want you to have a place where you can get everything that you ever wondered about the Word of God dealt with. This church, or any church, doesn't do you any good if we do not focus in on what your needs are. You know, years ago, I was in New York. And I remember I was driving down along the freeway, coming out of Brooklyn someplace with another preacher friend of mine. And I saw this big billboard. And the billboard said, Christ is the answer. And it was one of the uh, campus crusades organizations, you know, to reach people for Christ. uh, And a big billboard said, Christ is the answer. Well, as everything in New York, somebody had scanned up the, the pole or the ladder and got a big can of spray paint and wrote underneath it, What's the question? And I thought to myself when I saw that, you know what? That's what's wrong with churches today. We're answering questions that nobody's asking. And we're missing what the real issues are, and the real issue is your relationship with God. That's why we're doing the study that we're doing. Last week we talked about Genesis, and I showed you how that the book of Genesis was the book of the beginnings. And today I want to talk to you about the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters in it, as you can obviously see. It's got uh, 1,213 verses and 32,662 words. And it's the second book of Moses, which is commonly called, the, the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch. We talked about that last week. It is definitely, without a case, we, we don't even have to look at it. It is the book of redemption. You remember last week when we looked at the last part of Genesis, and I showed you how Genesis ended? Genesis ends with a man in a coffin in Egypt. And I showed you last week how that the book of Genesis is the picture of how God begins to do something... Man comes in and thinks he can do it better, and the whole book of Genesis is a picture of man against God, trying to overthrow God, many of those characters trying to find God, but the whole theme of Genesis shows you light versus darkness. And what the book of Genesis shows you is this, the very best that you and I can do, the very best that you and I can do, as far as religions concerned, as far as God is concerned, The very best that you and I can do to merit anything from God, certainly eternal life, is going to end us in a coffin in Egypt. Because that's the end of all men. The Bible says that we're going to die. And after this, the judgment. And without a man or a woman coming to the point in their life where they experience God's redemption, that they understand that there was death in this world, that God has given us life through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the book of Exodus does, it shows you that redemption. And it shows you christ typified as our Passover lamb. And the book of Exodus deals with two great prophecies. And these are some of the technical things you need to get down and understand here. And you want to put these in your notes as you're coming through your Bible about the structure of of Exodus, and and you want to get this. First of all, it deals with the prophecy in Genesis chapter 15 that talks about the 430 years that Israel is going to have to be in bondage in Egypt. That's a great prophecy that God gave Abraham. And he said, you're going to have to sojourn in a strange land for 430 years. He's talking about the time they go in Egypt, which is in the book of Exodus. Second of all, it's the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that talks about my son being called out of Egypt. Now, in an Old Testament sense, the nation of Israel is looked at as God's son as a nation. And you're going to find that when Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, right after he was born a strange thing happened. Joseph and his mother take him and go down to Egypt. And they stay there for a while and then they come out. And they come out and the Bible says when they come out the scripture has been fulfilled that he says I have called my son out of Egypt. Now those two places give you a great key to the Bible. And the great key to the Bible is that Christ is a picture of the nation of Israel and his sufferings and Israel's sufferings are pictures of each another, one another, as you go through the Bible. Those two great prophecies get fulfilled in the book of Exodus. Not only that, I'm going to give you a real easy breakdown of the book of Exodus. Every book in the Bible has a breakdown. That breakdown is what you want to get so that you can, when you look at it and you begin to read it, Again, you know what you're looking for. There's two redemptions in the book of Exodus. Two redemptions. And that's what really splits the book. Chapter 1 through chapter 14 deals with a physical redemption. Where God brings them out of Egypt. Chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 15 through chapter 40 deals with a spiritual redemption. God gives them the Ten Commandments. And you find, if you want to look at it in a general sense, the book of Exodus gets broken down in those two components. The first one is a physical redemption. The second one is a spiritual redemption. My, my, already, before we go any farther, we see the New Testament principles. You see, Israel was born physically when she came out of Egypt, but she had to be born spiritually. You and I were born physically, But the Bible says in John chapter 3, you must be born again, so we have to have a new birth, a spiritual birth, which puts us into the body of Christ. And where the physical birth put Israel into the land, the spiritual redemption put them into God. And it's a great picture of just what you have and I have in my life and your life if you're saved this morning as a New Testament Christian that you're going to find that everything in that Old Testament will foreshadow and picture something that we're going to deal with in the New Testament. Now, when you come to the book of Exodus, you have two more types to put on your list. The first type is Moses, and he's going to be a type of Christ. Remember last week I told you there was 21 men in the Old Testament, that foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ in things that they did and are what we call types of Christ. They're very incredible to study. So we have Moses now as our next type of Christ. Then we have another type of Antichrist. Remember I told you last week, there are 18 men in the Old Testament that foreshadow the coming man of sin. And for us in the book of Exodus, this will be Pharaoh. And we begin to see that doctrinally, and you'll want to put this note somewhere in the beginning of your Bible too. We're not going to get into this in depth today, but you want to know this. That doctrinally, prophetically, the book of Exodus pictures the tribulation period. Moses is a type of the two witnesses, or he is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. He comes back into tribulation. He goes before Pharaoh, a type of the Antichrist, and he tells Pharaoh who has the people of Israel in bondage, let my people go. Pharaoh won't let them go. So Moses brings the plagues, turns the waters to blood, brings down the hail mingled with fire. All the plagues fall on Egypt, just like they're going to fall on the Antichrist in the tribulation period because he won't let God's people go. So in a doctrinal sense, you're going to find that the book of Exodus represents for us much of the end times material that you're going to find in the book of Revelation. In fact, as you study the Bible more, you're going to find that probably at least 90% of the Old Testament foreshadows the latter days. We call it prophecy. We call it a doctrinal concept of the Bible dealing with prophetic doctrine. So you want to remember those things right there. And those things, as you look at them, put them someplace in the early notes of your Bible uh, at the beginning so that when you begin to look at that book or somebody asks you a Bible question, you have all that material there that you know how the book of Exodus lays itself out because those are some of the things that you want to begin to look for. Now, as I said earlier, the book of Exodus, I think, is probably one of the most incredible books in the Bible from the standpoint that it shows you and I, our complete life. I've never seen anything like it in my life. It's no accident that in the book of Exodus chapter 4 that Israel is called God's son. Because the nation of Israel, from a practical standpoint, you're going to find, lays out the redemptive plan of God in such an unbelievable, unique way that you cannot miss it. And I want to say to you this morning, Danny sung the song, yes I know, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, yes I know. And I'm saying that to say this, in the world that we live in, you can know that your sins have been forgiven. We live in a world that we've got everything backwards. We think we're living because we're going to live forever. We think this world is going to go on and get better and better. And someday we're all going to attain the the majesty and peace that everybody wants. But I got news for you. This old world is on a collision course with God. Because as you saw when we started our study, God has a plan. And when you look at the book of Exodus, you see the redemptive plan of God so clearly. It shows the life of an unsaved man or an unsaved woman before you got saved. It shows you and me the bondage we were under before God saved us. And it shows how that God heard our cry. That God saw us in our sin. And that God then sent a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and sent His salvation. And then as you look at that, I'm not kidding you. Every aspect of your life is laid out from Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 40. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible says when you get saved, God begins a work in you. And God is going to perform that work with you or without you, right up to the day He comes and takes us out of here in the rapture of the church. The book of Exodus is that story. It's the story of redemption. And that there was one book in the Bible that I could take you to and show you every aspect of your Christian life, with every concept and of every event, from before you were saved, when you got saved, right up to the point of after you're saved, your baptism, and everything, your ministry, and everything. If there's one book that just puts it all in parentheses, it's this book right here. And to my way of thinking, the book of Exodus was one of the most astounding books in all of the Bible. And when you break it down, which I'm going to do for you, this is what I'm giving you. I'm going to show you, you will never look at the book of Exodus again without understanding. Now there are some books in the Bible that take a little more work. Oh, not this one. This is a freebie. This is so easy, all somebody has to do is just get you started on it, and it'll explode into your mind with all of the concepts for your life. And that's why God wrote the Bible. He wrote the Bible that you and I could have an understanding of what life is all about and what God expects us to be and to do. Let's ask God's blessing as we jump into this great lesson. Father... Again, we thank you and praise you for the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for His salvation. We thank you for His blood. And we ask you today, Father, in a very real way, in a very special way, to open up our hearts this morning and to just really show us this great redemptive plan. Show us, Father, what is so real in this book, this, the, the magnitude of this great Bible, how it lays itself out chapter upon chapter, verse upon verse, Giving us the great insight and concepts into the Word of God that we need to have for our own lives, and we'll thank you today, and we'll praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it, Amen. Now I don't know if you ever looked at the Book of Exodus, but it, and I don't necessarily want you to turn to all these places today. There's going to come a place here where that I want you to. But I'd rather have you just listen to me because it's easier to absorb it all. And if you're really interested, you can get the tape or take notes or whatever. Or see me and I'll sit down with you and go through it again, however. But when you come through the book of Exodus, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 are great chapters. Now, these are how the chapters, this is how the book breaks down. So, you want to follow me along with this. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Wow. You know what you got? You got a picture you got a picture of an unsaved man under the bondage of this world, typified by the nation of Israel under the hard bondage of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a type of the devil. Israel is a type, he's called a man in the Bible, as a corporate nation. And he's down in Egypt, type of the world. That's the last thing we saw was a man in a coffin in Egypt. In the last verse in Genesis, in the last chapter. And now here we are. In chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, the Bible says the nation of Israel is down in Egypt under hard bondage. There is nothing good in Egypt. There is nothing that is going to help the nation of Israel... Pharaoh has got a making bricks for his pyramids. He's killing them by the thousands. He's trying to wipe them out. He hates them. And he's, he, there, there's no days off. There's no holidays. They are work, work, work because they're under the bondage of this world. What a picture of it is before you and I got saved. Now let me just say this to you this morning. If you're unsaved this morning, I understand that you probably think the life you're having is really fun. You enjoy going out and drinking all night and throwing up all morning. That's a great time. You enjoy all of the things that you have to go through in life that, that you think are fun. The problem is, you don't find out till you're about you're what, 20 now, 22, 23. You really don't find out till you're about 50 that those things really aren't fun. It's the same way that it was with your parents. You know, when you were a kid growing up and a teenager, you thought your parents were the dumbest people in the world. You knew more about everything in life than they did. And suddenly, when you turned 20, I realized that my mom and dad had gotten so smart in just a few short years. Truth of the matter is, they were always smarter than me because they had more life than me. They had more time under their belt, more mistakes under their belt, and they saw what life had did to them. Here I am, just a kid out of high school, and Wow! I think it's going to be a great life. I'm looking forward to going to the military. I'm looking forward to getting my shot at things. And I'm looking forward to all this stuff and all the life that goes with it. And you know what? My parents had seen some things and said, you know what? All that glitters out there is not gold. But to me, it was neon lights and party city. To me, it was, man, I got the world by the tail and I'm on my way. Now I'm 53 years old. I know I don't look like it. You don't have to make a big deal about that. But I'm telling you, life is a veil of tears. And this world will not leave you any better than it finds you. Why? Because it wants to put you under bondage. Right now, you're looking at having a great time, drinking and partying, and you say, this is what we're to do. At 60, it's called cirrhosis of the liver and a nose that big. McDaisies look like nothing. Right now, it's smoke this, take this, take this drug. At 60, it is mush brain city. You can't even remember where you live. Right now, it's, oh, cigarettes are the end thing. I like to smoke. You know, it doesn't hurt anything. Over here, it's the doctor coming in and saying, well, Mr. Alexander, I got some terrible news for you. We're going to take out all your lungs. But don't worry, we're going to give you a pipe to breathe out of. Just hold it up and catch some air whenever you can. That's the other side. You see, the devil always makes it look good till you get to the place where you realize how stupid you were, but then it's too late. That's the devil. That's the bondage. And that's where I was. And that's where many of you were before God heard my cry. He says down there in chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, And it came to pass, in the process of time, that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groanings. Oh, God heard their groanings. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Oh, what a great passage. I know you think that's in the Old Testament, but God made another covenant, and He made it with His Son. And when Bob Alexander was down in sin, when Bob Alexander was lost without Christ, without hope, when Bob Alexander was under the pressure and the bondage of this world, My groanings went up to God, and God remembered a covenant He made with His Son on the cross. Oh, thank be the glory to God, for I know today, I know today that the blood of God's Son will cleanse you and cleanse me. Why? Because I was under bondage. And God heard my groanings. Oh, then we come to chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. For in chapter 1, 2, and 3, oh, it's Bob Alexander under the bondage of this world, crying under the affliction and the bondage. But in 4, 5, and 6, God hears the cry, and God sends him a deliverer, Moses. Type of Christ. Moses, my deliverer, comes to get me out of the bondage. Did you ever study Moses? He's the second guy in the Bible that's called the friend of God. There's only two. Now, I know that a lot of other people were friends of God, and a lot of you are the friend of God. But there's a reason why God just picked two guys and says, if you want to be my friend, study these men's lives. Moses is a type of Christ. And God sends him down as a deliverer to the nation of Israel to get him out of bondage. And God sent his son down to me to get me out of the bondage. Do you ever look at the similarities between Christ and Moses? I mean, when you read chapter 4, 5, and 6, you know what you find? You find that Moses was divinely chosen. So was the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find it when Moses was a little baby. They had to hide him in the bulrushes in a boat down there in in the swamp because a king wanted to kill him at birth, just like in Matthew 2. The king wanted to kill Christ at birth. Killed all the babies three years and younger. You ever study his life as he goes on? He goes out there and he he got out in the wilderness and he meets an young man by the name of Jethro, king of Midian. And he marries his daughter, Zipporah. Here's a man that is divinely chosen, like Christ, almost gets killed as a baby like Christ, and now he gets a Gentile bride, just like Christ does. Wow! Oh, well, later on, you know what he does? He feeds his people with bread, just like Christ does. In John chapter 6, verse 32, when he says, I am the bread of life. You know what else? Moses carried those people through to the promised land. But he dies before the people get in the land. Jesus Christ came in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give his people the promised land. But he died before they ever got in the land. You ever look at this? Moses, a type of Christ... Divinely chosen. Almost killed as a baby. Gentile bride. Feeds his people with bread. Died before they get into the land. First time he shows up to his own people, chapter 1, verse 14, they reject him. Second time he shows up, chapter 4, verse 31, the Bible says the people believed and they accept him. That's by Jesus. First time he came, they rejected him. Second time he comes, they're going to believe. And I'm telling you, chapter by chapter by chapter, You have a complete and total picture of every man and every woman on the face of this planet. And every aspect from the time they were lost to the time that God sent them a deliverer. Then you look at chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. You know what happens there? The devil gets wind that they got a deliverer. And what you see in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing more than the battle for your soul between God and the devil. You see, the devil don't want to let you go. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. Moses, the type of Christ, came down and he says, Let Bob Alexander go! And I'm telling you, how many times I've seen it. The fight and the battle. I've seen it in this room when you preach and there's men and women that are lost and you get down to the end and you talk about accepting Christ or receiving Christ and the battle is so clear. How many times I've talked to husbands and wives or moms and dads or about and, 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 a, and a wife will have a, a husband that's not saved or vice versa. And boy, when they start to get confronted with Christ, their whole attitude changes. They get angry. They get mad. And the wife takes it personal and I tell her, it ain't you. Don't get upset. He's, don't take it personal. He's not mad at you. There's a battle going on for his soul. Oh, when you see the battle, the devil will do everything he can to keep you in Egypt under bondage. He'll do everything he can to make MTV and all your movies you see and all the books you read and all the billboards make this bondage in Egypt look like it's glorious. Like you're having a great time. But by the time you get to your 50 and your 60, and I know it looks like a long way away, but it's not. And there's several laws in the Bible that are absolute, and one of them is the law of sowing and reaping. What you reap, you will sow. So we get down there in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, the adversary, the devil... Pharaoh shows up, and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, come on. You ought to see the compromise in here. You ought to see what Pharaoh does to keep them when he knows that he might lose them. He says down there in 8, chapter 26, he says, okay, okay, you want to go sacrifice to your God, go ahead and go, but just don't sacrifice a lamb. Yeah, you want to go to church, I think it's great. Just don't get hung up with that crazy people to believe that Christ on the cross and His death will save you. Just go do some nice work someplace. Second thing he says in verse 28, chapter 8, he says, you know what? Okay, go ahead and go, but don't go very far away. Try to make the best of both worlds. Don't become a fanatic. You know, don't, don't get, go off the deep end. Recognize and realize that what you're dealing with here. I mean, it's okay to go to church and it's okay to go uh, be religious and all that, but man, don't, I mean, don't be, I mean, now you're reading your Bible every day. Years ago, I had a woman come in to sit down with me and she had a problem with her boy. And she says, Bob, she says, you've got to help me with my son. He says, he's just out in the world, and he's staying out late at night. He's just doing everything in the world. And he says, says, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, I'll be glad to talk to him. Well, I don't put much hope in those, but I always give it a shot. In this case, I was wrong. Me and this kid hit it off right off the bat. And we talked about, you know, everything, you know. He was interested in World War II and military history and history in general. And so was I. We went out to lunch, talked about things, and talked about the great battles in life. And and I brought it all around and showed him the great battle in life. Well, he got saved. Went home, started coming to church, started coming to Bible study. Honest to goodness, eight weeks later, I got a call from his mother. Mad at me. He said, what did you do to my son? I didn't know what I had done to him. I said, what's the matter? You back out and... No! He won't go out with his old friends anymore. He just sits around and reads his Bible all the time. And now, I I, I didn't know what to say to her that would have been Christian. (laughs) I thought to myself, man, I'll tell you right now, the problem here is not the boy. The problem here is you. You want, you. what do you want? You didn't like it because he was out in the world. Now you don't like it because he's with God. You know what she wanted? She wanted that nice place in the middle where she was. See? Out here, that's too radical to the left. But over here, whoa, well, that's too radical to the right. He's making me look bad in both cases. Why can't you just make him like me? And I'm telling you, devil will try everything in the world to keep you from getting saved. He'll make every compromise in the world. He'll tell you everything you want to hear just to get you where he wants you, and then he'll go right back to doing what he wants to do. You know the third thing he says? He says, okay, if you're going to go sacrifice, that's fine, but leave the kids. We'll watch the kids while you go. In other words, if I can't get this generation, I'll get the next one. Now I don't have time to get into all that this morning, but I'm saying this. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 shows you your bondage in the world system before you were saved. 4, 5, and 6, God sent you a deliverer. 7, 8, 9, 10, devil doesn't like it. But oh boy, chapter 12, whoa. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, it doesn't matter if the devil likes it or not. Salvation through the blood of the Lamb. Exodus chapter 12 could well be called the gospel according to Exodus. you got every picture of Christ being crucified on the cross that you could ever find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Watch this, 12-1. the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months, and ye shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him his neighbor next unto him's house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make account for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it upon the two side posts of the upper post of the door of the houses, whereon they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Eat it not. Eat not of it raw, nor sod at all with water, but roast with fire the head and his legs and the pertinent thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and which remain of it shall the morning shall ye burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be unto you, a token upon the houses, uh, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Oh, we sing the song, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 12, they put the blood on the door. And I'm telling you, you were in bondage in Egypt. I'm telling you something else. God sent you deliver. And I'm telling you something else. The devil didn't like it. But thanks be to God in my life and most of your life, there came a day anyhow when you took that bucket of blood and you put it on the door of your soul and you were covered by the blood. And when God's judgment comes, He sees the blood, He's going to pass over you. Your salvation. Blood on the door. Did you ever look at it? Blood on this side. What is the Bible so exact? Blood on this side, blood on this side, blood on the top. I'll tell you why. One thief here, one thief here, one thief here. Notice he's higher than they are. He's numbered with a transgressor, but he's deity. One, two, three. Fourteenth day of the month. That's the day Christ was crucified on. Israel kills him, a male, first thing to the flock. Notice down there in verse 9 it says, No water can touch this sacrifice, because Christ on the cross said, I thirst. I thirst. He says down there in verse 11, when you eat it, shoes on your feet, staff in your hand. You know why? Get ready to do something for God the day you get saved. God doesn't save you to sit. God doesn't save you to do nothing. He said when you eat this Passover lamb, get your shoes on your feet, get your staff on your hand, get ready to go. I'll show you something about this book you'll never find any place in this old world. Look down here in chapter 12, verse 3. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying the tenth month of this month shall take every man a lamb. Look at verse 4. And of the household be too little for the lamb. Look at verse 5. Your lamb. Now what kind of mind do you think behind that Bible that would go the first step a lamb, second step the lamb, last step your lamb. You see, the first thing you need is a lamb without not specifying whatever kind. But you don't just need a lamb, you need the lamb. But you know what? You can know all about that lamb. I can tell you all day long, your friends can tell you, your mom and dad can tell you, you can hear all about that lamb. But until you make that lamb your lamb, you don't have the blood on the door. I'm telling you that book something else. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And he says, verse 13, when I see the blood, when I see the blood. Oh, there was a day in my life when I was, I was tired of that bondage. I knew what the devil had done. I knew there was no hope in life. I was down. I was despondent. I thought to myself, you know what? What is life all about? What is life all about? I remember back then there was a song came out. I don't remember who sang it. It was a gal. One of my favorite songs. And the theme of it went, is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friend? Then let's just keep dancing. Let's do it on the booze and have a ball. And I thought to myself, is this all there is? And yet God said, no, Bob, there's more to that. But you need to get saved first. And boy, on that day in my life, I put the blood on the door. I put the blood on the door. Devil didn't like it. I put the blood on the door. And I'm telling you what, I got the sacrificial lamb of my life. And as Danny sang today, Yes, I know the blood of Jesus Christ has washed away my sin. The blood's on my door. Then the next chapter, chapter 13. You know what you find in chapter? And this thing fits, man. I mean chapter by chapter. You come to the place where you're lost. You come to the place where God sends you deliver. You come to the place where the devil doesn't like it. You come to the place where you get saved. And in chapter 13, you know what he talks about then? He talks about your sanctification. He says in verse 2, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn. All the firstborn. And I don't know if you know it or not, but that's a great doctrine in the Bible. The day doctrine is this: when you get saved, you're no longer part of Egypt. When they come out of Egypt, they were out of Egypt. And they weren't to look back, they weren't to go back. The Bible says in First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What? Know you not your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not true, sure, oh, you're bought with a price. You're bought with a price. And God saved you and he called you out of the world and you're never to go back again. You're separate now. You're sanctified. You're set apart. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 says, "Come out from among them and be ye separate," saith the Lord, "and touch not the unclean thing." You're separate now. When you got saved, it sanctified you. That's what sanctification means. It means you're separated. When they come out of Egypt, the type of the world, God said, you're no longer to look back. You don't marry anybody from Egypt. You don't do anything with Egypt. You don't have anything to do with their horses. You don't have anything to do with their cattle. You're completely separated. And I'm telling you, if you don't make that separation the day you get saved, I'm not saying you won't struggle. I'm not saying you won't fall. I'm saying you better set in your heart, I'm done with this world. Or you'll be right back in it again. I'll show you why in just a moment. The next chapter, verse 14, chapter 14, we've seen now coming through here, we've seen the picture of their bondage. We've seen their deliverer. We've seen the adversary try to keep them from getting saved. We saw them get saved. Now we've seen their sanctification. You know what you got in chapter 14? You got their baptism. Oh, yeah. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, talks about the baptism of Moses. When he went through the Red Sea, the Bible says they were baptized in a cloud. The mist of that sea coming under got them all wet. And they went under that thing. It was a picture of Christ dying. And when they come out the other side, they were all wet. We're going to have a great service here coming up, probably as soon as the weather gets nice. We got a whole bunch of people. We don't have a baptism. Baptism will pull out here and rain enough to fill it up. But we're going to go someplace where there's an old lake or a swimming pool. And we're going to have one of the guys preach. We're going to have some food. Then we're going to baptize. Then we've got a slug of people that have been saved that need to be baptized. And we are going to have a great time. You know why? Because baptism, baptism uh, signifies you and your salvation with the death of Christ. It doesn't save you. But, oh, it connects you, showing the world that you have been dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. And when they went across that Red Sea, they went down under that water, just like you go under the water. And they were, they were, they were immersed or dispersed with all the mist of that water. Out there, believe you've got to be baptized to go to heaven. What do they sing? Water fellowship, water joy. I don't know. I sing power in the blood. They must sing power in the tub. I don't know. I just know this. I got a book. And I got a song in my heart, and it's not because I was baptized. It's not because I go to church. It's cause my deliverer came, and He lives inside my heart today. And I'm happy because my sins have been delivered. I got a dog bill. I got to pay in another hour. Four hundred and fifty bucks. Four hundred and fifty dollars for a dog for my kid. If they were going to keep her tomorrow, one more day, $700. No. What am I? I look at that and I think to myself, whoa, and you get things go through your mind. A bullet's only a buck. <coughs> 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 you know what? you go out tomorrow, I'm going to tell you next week, something bad is going to happen to you. You're going to think you're going to get a little farther ahead, car is going to break down. Somebody says, and this is the way you look at things. Somebody says, well, yeah, our family, we are a three-car family. And they think that's a big deal. For me, it's just three times the problems. That means, I, in my mind, somebody says, well, you we got three cars. I think, oh, what's well, going to go wrong with one of them next week? You know, and nothing cheap anymore. Barb had a little Suzuki. You used to see her drive around for years. One time it went bad. We went in there, and the guy said, it'll be $975. I said, for what? I said, it ain't Ain't worth that much. He says, Well, there's one little computer box in there that runs everything. Oh, and it's broke? Yes, it is. Well, okay, how much? 970. Oh man. You know what? Some of you are gonna be disappointed next week. Maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend are gonna say, sorry, it's over. Maybe your boss is gonna say, sorry, it's over. <coughs> Maybe somebody's gonna get sick, like little Emily. <coughs> Maybe some real tragedy, not like my dinky dog, but some real thing's going to fall in your life or my life. And you know what? Life's tough. And I'm not looking forward to next week any more than I was last week. Because this life's a veil of tears. But I don't care about the dog pill. I don't care about the car breaking down. You know why? Because my worst case scenario, if I die now, I'm going to heaven. That's a clear burden to bear, boy, but I'll bear it. I'm out of here. This old world don't mean nothing. This old world's gonna collide. <clears throat> this old world's gonna blow up. I'm telling you, I got a song in my heart because God sent me to deliver. And no, I gotta pay a dog bill. I gotta fix the car. I gotta cut the grass. Ah, I gotta fix the banisters. I gotta paint the house. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. So what? I don't care what happened next week. I'm going with Him. That's why you're finding that Bible over and over again. Psalm 95, Psalm 96, Psalm 48. Over and over and over. They're singing, they're singing, they're singing. And you know what? Psalm 137, 1 through 4 I think it is. Children of Israel in captivity. Babylon comes down and takes them into captivity. The Bible says they're sitting down there by the river in bondage under the world. And their captors come over and they said, Hey! Why don't you sing us one of those songs of Zion? And know what the answer is? How can we sing a song of the Lord when we're living in a strange land? I'll tell you why there's no joy in your heart this morning. I'll tell you why you don't have the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. I'll tell you why you don't sing and there's no new song in your heart if you're saved. I'll tell you why. Because you've lost the victory. You've lost the power of God. You look up in the morning and you see all the despondent things in this life and you forget the very fact you may lose some battles down here but bless God, you've won the war. You've overcome. And because you have overcome He lives inside you and there's a new song in my heart. Oh, I could care less about the trials of this life. What are they compared to the song that God pulled me out of the mire when old Pharaoh had me making bricks with my feet and killing me under bondage and God came down and brought me out? You know what the next chapter is? Next chapter is, they get the word of God. Chapter 16. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're out there in the wilderness, nothing to eat. The old food that they got back in Egypt doesn't taste good anymore. The water's bitter. Picture the day you get saved. You can't eat the old places you used to eat. You can't drink the old things you used to drink. So God gives you something better, a supernatural food from heaven. The Word of God. Oh it's no wonder Paul said to Timothy for when you receive the word of God you not receive it as a word of man but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It was supernatural from God and God brought the bread down to them. Supernaturally and God brought this book down to me and to you. It was manna. The source of strength in the wilderness. It's the Bible my source of strength in the wilderness. I'll tell you something else. It came to right where the people were. They didn't have to search for it. They didn't have to go out and find it with a microscope. They didn't have to find it in some dead cave. No, no. God brought the living Word of God right to them. And, it, and when they get up in the morning, it lie right around the tents. And they get up in the morning and they picked it up and they ate it. And yet the Bible says in all of that when God brought it down, and God brought the supernatural food right to where the people were, the Bible clearly says that some gathered more and some gathered less. You see, you can have exactly of God what you want. Your limit of God is not me. It is isn't your circumstances. It isn't your mother. It isn't your father. It isn't your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Your limiting of God in your life depends on you. How much of God you're willing to give to Him. And then lastly, the Bible says that the manna was preserved in the ark. The word of God is preserved. God given you the supernatural gift. Then when you get to chapter 17, you got the picture of your prayer life. You got a battle called the battle of Rephidim. And you got a man by the name of Amalek. Picture of your flesh. And you got a Moses. Picture you. And there's a battle going on in the valley. A picture of the, the battles of your life. And Moses stands up on a mountain overlooking the battle. And the Bible says when he lifts up his hands, they win. When they drop their hands, they lose. Picture your prayer life. When you lift up your hands to prayer in God with the battles of his life, you win. When you stop praying, you lose. And you know what the story says? Moses' hands get heavy. And he can't hold him up. And sometimes in your life, your hands are going to get heavy in prayer. And you know what happens? Ur and Aaron come over and lift up his hands and help him hold them up. It's a picture of you calling your friend. It's a picture of your friend calling you and saying, Bob, I'm going through a tough time and I've been praying, but I'm weary. I need you to pray with me. I need you to help. hold." And then three or four or five or six of you get together and you pray and you hold up every other's hands and you pray because prayer is the power of God in your life. Chapter 18, you find the ministry. People. And you find the great story there of Moses being a leader over a great number of people. And you know what? Some of you right now are growing spiritually. And I'm going to tell you, in time, if God tarries his coming, you're going to be a great leader. And you're going to be working with people in various scenarios. And maybe someday, I have no doubt in my mind that some of you will not be pastoring a church And you'll be doing a thing for God that is pleasing to God and that's where Moses found himself and it's a great picture and it's a great picture of how not to get the right advice because his Jethro comes in and I don't have time to go into all this every preacher every Bible college in the country teaches their young men this is the standard format of how you deal with churches and you know what Jethro gave him the wrong advice If you take your Bible, remember the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. If you take your Bible and you convey Jethro's advice with what God already said about Moses, you're going to find that Jethro gave him the worst advice in the world. And by the time you get to the book of Numbers, you see the damage that it did. And yet we take that and we lift it up and we tell every young preacher in the world today, this is how you run your church. No wonder churches are failing today. Jethro gave him every piece of worldly advice and even took away the very things that God said to him. Ask that question some Thursday night. That'll take us a couple of weeks. But I'm telling you what. You're going to deal with people. And you need to learn to do it the right way. You need to know how to deal with them. You need to know what to say. You need to know how to organize it. How to structure it. You need to know what to look for. How to, in time. Not now maybe, but in time. And the Bible is the book. And that's why God puts those stories in there. Here's old Jethro. Got every piece of old homespun philosophy. No wonder they called him Jethro. And he comes in and he says, oh, Moses, don't do it this way. You do it this way. Oh, yeah, don't do this. Don't do that. I'll give you one of the things he says. He says, you know what? You don't need to deal with these small matters. He says, you need to deal with the big matters. He says, you're too important, Moses. He says, you need to, he says, he says you, you, you're too important. You don't need to deal with all these little piddly things. You need to deal with the big things. Well, the Bible says, excuse me, Jethro, but it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It ain't the big things that screw up Christianity. It's the little things. It's not crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Oh, I'm telling you, if you dealt with the little things, you wouldn't have the big thing. You got the big thing because nobody dealt with the little things. Oh, that chapter is such an incredible chapter. Then you get into chapter 19 through chapter 24. And you know what you deal with it in those chapters? You deal with the law. God gives them an understanding of the Old Testament law. And you know what it simply says for you and for me? Simply stated and translated it in the simplest form. It simply says this God has standards of holiness. God has standards of holiness that are non negotiable. For a child of God, if you think you can be saved and live like the world and get away with it, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I'm telling you young people something right now. You think you can do your own thing and live like the world on one side and go to church and do the thing and talk about the Bible? You're wrong. You may get away with it for a short period of time, but I'm telling you something. There's a law of sowing and reaping, and you reap the wind right now, you'll reap the whirlwind later. I'm telling you. There's laws in that Bible. In fact, there's seven of them. They're absolute, and one of them is the law of sowing and reaping. And I'm telling you. I'm telling you, God's people need to understand that God is a holier God. And going to church on Sunday morning and doing one thing and living like the devil on the other time and going out with your old friends and doing this and doing that. I'm telling you right now, you are fooling yourself. And you go through that whole procedure, you know, and you follow this and like that, and it down 5, 10, 15 years down the line, your marriage is going to be a mess, your kids are going to be a mess, it's going to be one big mess. You know why? God has standards of holiness. Then in chapter 25 to chapter 27, chapter 28 to 31, chapter 32 to chapter 40, we have the work of the ministry. We don't have time to go into all those today, but this is what you need to look for. Chapter 25 and 27, the tabernacle. That's where you as a priest do the work. In chapter 28 to chapter 31, he talks about the priesthood. That's where you get a good look at what you should do as a priest and how you should be and conduct yourself as a priest. And in chapter 32 through chapter 40, you get the great chapters on working with their saints and their sins. And you get an example of dealing with people and the problems of their lives all the way through that book. That book of Exodus is one of the most incredible books that you ever find in your life. In summary, I'm saying this and then I'm done. The book of Exodus teaches seven great truths. One, a recap. One, an unsaved man is like a bond slave in this world to a fierce master. Two, It takes a direct intervention from God to free that slave. Three, God will use a man to free the people that are in bondage. Four, redemption is only by the blood. Five, there can be no compromise with the world by the redeemed. Six, redemption starts a life of battles and trials and tribulations, but God will fight and win those battles for you. And seven, Mark 7, God has standards of holiness that must be conformed to for they are absolute. Book of Exodus. The book of redemption. Chapter by chapter. That's what you look for. Every head bowed and every eye closed.